All right, if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 13 to 16. And um, we're going to have sermon time. Uh, let, me, let me just say right now as you turn there in your Bible, I'm not going to talk, I have not planned to talk at all about um, things related to the death of George Floyd um, and things that have happened since his passing. Um, I am expecting there to be questions in the AMA, and then at the end of the Ask Me Anything, I, there, I have some comments I've specifically prepared for that. So we are going to talk about it at the end of the service. Um, so if you're wondering why my servant sermon isn't on this, I also know that Marcus Allen at, um, at uh, Mount Zion Church is going to specifically preach his message on these cultural events today. And so hearing what he has to say, I think will be really helpful. And that sermon will be up online, I'm sure, in the next day or so. So um, I'd really encourage you to check out what Marcus Allen, the pastor at um, Mount Zion Church, has to say about some of the stuff we'll talk about later, too. All right. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 16 says this. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers— and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. I think if you if we translate the message of this passage into the present moment for us, it would be something like this. Whether you embrace the gospel as the word of God or not the word of God, the word of men, is going to put you on a path either of redemptive suffering or damnable suppression. Whether or not you accept the gospel as it is, the word of God, your choice, one way or the other on that, is the word of God or is the word of men put in the mouth of God, is going to put you on a path either of redemptive suffering or of damnable suppression. That's the statement in this passage, and I think it's unchanged in its message for today. There's a, a saying that people in political commentary and sports commentary and the young people say this, um, the statement, big if true, right? Which is kind of like, what you're saying is preposterous, if it was true, it would be big, right? And then there's true, so big. Like, the thing is true, and because it's true, it's big. So, example of this would be, um, we're all going to get helicopters in the next two years. They're going to be green. They're going to be, like, cheap. It's going to be awesome. They're going to self-power. It's like, you know, an Uber without having to drive. Like, that, big if true, right? Not true, though. Like, we're not going to get helicopters. And they're at least not going to be green, you know? Um, True so big would be like um, the number of people in the world living in extreme poverty was cut in half between 2000 and 2015. In half. People living on one or two dollars a day was cut in half in the world over those years. Most people don't even know that. It's true. And it's big. Okay, now here's the thing. The gospel is— one, one of those two things. It's not small. Whatever it is, it's not small. It's either big if true, but not true, or true, 
so big. And there isn't really a good space for treating it like it's not big, right? Because of that, inherent to the kind of message the gospel is, right, it's either the Word of God entrusted to men so that everybody could hear it, or it's the Word of men that we made up that people tried to put in the mouth of God so it sounded like it had authority. It's one of those two things, right? And why do I say the gospel? Because the passage just says the Word of God. Why do I say gospel? The gospel means the good news. And it's because earlier in chapter 2, the passage Lloyd preached two weeks ago, it says in 2 verse 4, he says, we came to you because God entrusted us with the gospel and we preached that word to you. So when the word, which means message, right, that the apostles preaching is a specific message, which is the message of the gospel, the good news. Now, just to clarify, the good news is the message that God in the person of his son became incarnate in the man Jesus— to teach prophetically the human race what it needed to know to be saved, to die on behalf of sinners, to take on to himself to die for our sins, to impute or to put onto those who believe the righteousness of Christ himself, to reconcile human beings with God, to reconcile those believing human beings with each other, no matter what race, creed, class, or anything they come from, And so make a new people of God, of all nations, tribes, and tongues, to be one people forever, to be God's inheritance that he gives as a gift to himself for him to enjoy forever like a bride and to be enjoyed forever like a bride. And that that salvation will come to pass in a time in which all the groanings of creation, all the injustices of human life, and all the difficulties of our own wretchedness will be wiped away in a final salvation where our humanity is made whole, in which we are united with Christ forever. That good news, that thing that has been accomplished in the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that if we believe, we can enter into that promise, that heritage, that goodness. That word is either the word of God entrusted to heralds to be spoken and heard by people. So it's the word of God that comes through people, or it's the word of man people made up and put in the mouth of God. And you, and you believe one of those two things. So Paul says, it was a beautiful thing when I came to you, Thessalonians, and I preached the word of God, and you recognized it was the first and not the second. You recognized that we men were speaking the truth of God. We weren't making something up and putting it in the mouth of God. Because we would have never gone through all the suffering and let people beat us up and threaten to kill us everywhere we went if it was just something we were teaching. If there wasn't a risen Christ to stand behind this, Right. It says in verse 13, We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard, you heard from us, you accepted it as, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. You see the distinction he's making? We preached the word of God. You heard it from us, but it's God's word and message. And then when you received it, he, he negatively differentiates. He says, you received it not as the word of men, but what it actually is, the Word of God. You see how he's making really clear that this distinction is incredibly important. This distinction makes all the difference. He's thanking God for it. Then he says, that Word, because it's the Word of God, it can work in you who believe. If it wasn't—that Word wasn't connected to God himself and the Spirit of God working it out, the Word couldn't work in you. But because it's the Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God, it can actually work in you if you—and when you believe it, right? Now, 
depending on how we choose there, whether we see this as the Word of God or whether we think it's the Word of men put in the mouth of God, that's going to lead us or drive us into two paths of existence in relationship to the God of all of creation and salvation, which is that either we're going to become people of that Word. Because it's the Word of God, we become people of that Word. And no matter what, we follow that Word, and we belong to that Word, and we live in that Word, and we're saved in that Word. And so we follow the path of the people who belong to it, and we serve the Word, the truth, and the God of that truth. And what that's going to lead us to is what you might refer to as redemptive suffering. Like, it's going to look kind of like Paul's life, and Jesus' life, and the prophets' lives. And the second option is if we don't see the gospel as the Word of God, we will see it as bad news and threatening news. We will see it as an ill to society and a bad thing in the world. And we will, in small ways and in large ways, separate ourselves from it, caricature it, try to silence it, not give it, deplatform it, ultimately oppress it. We will become part of its suppression. And God finds the suppression of his word something that is damnable and it heaps up anger. Right? And you'd be like, why? Why is he so touchy about it? It, Because, as I've just said, that word, the message of the gospel, is the mechanism of redemption of all humanity. If you suppress the word, you suppress his chosen vehicle of the redemption of all people, and the curing of all ills, and the, the help to all in need. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. And to suppress that word is a heaping up damnable opposition. And what I'm telling you is there's really only two options. Now, you might say, okay, well, yeah, but no, right? Like, Nick, there's, 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 got, there's probably a third option. Isn't there an option that's something like, I don't really care about your stupid religion? Like, what if I'm just, I don't find religion interesting, or I find it irrelevant, or it doesn't move me, or I just— I'm, I'm not—I'm not focused on that sort of thing. I'm, I'm actually tempted to talk about current events here, but I'm going to use an abstract illustration because I don't want to confuse the issue, okay? Imagine for a minute a man and woman—you could switch the genders if you want, if you think this is sexist, but imagine a man and woman get married, and they've been married for a few years, and imagine the man is doing something— that is long-term, progressively destructive to their relationship and family. He has a drinking problem. He has a big porn habit that's creating other problems. He's, he's just—there's there's there's a problem in his life that he won't deal with, and that's creating—that's that's, that's portending really bad things. And she comes to him, and she says, Darling, over the first several years of our marriage, I have tried to be supportive and encourage you in certain ways, hoping that— your other relationships, or the Word of God, or something would cause you to have this moment of realization so that you would turn away from this thing. But listen, you haven't so far, and we're getting, we're getting further to the point where it's harder and harder to turn these things around, and I need you to recognize that, that our relationship is going to be harmed by this irreparably, and your life is going to be harmed by this, and your career, and our friends, and our parents' relationships, and our, our future children, and all these things are going to be what you're doing is going to kill our good future, and you need to realize it and accept it and stop and let me help you and let others help you. And like, something's got to change. It has to change, right? Now, if his response is, 
Um, you know, there might be some truth in what you're saying. Um, I don't think it's as urgent, you know, as you're getting on about it. And I, I think there's some emotionalism here. And, um, I, you know, like it's, it's worth talking about sometime. We should probably sit down and talk about this sometime. Um, but it's not, it's not the most important thing today for me. I've got other things I got to get at. And um, I know you're clearly upset about this. If, if he responds like that, even if he partly concedes the truth of it, he has wholly rejected her. He's wholly rejected her. Because the drama, the interest, the focus, the relevance is part of the message. It's part of her claim. She's saying, this is relevant. We have an interest in each other. There is a drama to this. Don't you see it? Don't you see that's why you must choose? That's why something must be done, right? And if he's like, well, I don't see that. He does, he's not, he, he's not found a third way. He's, he's trying to steal a third way. He's trying to create a, a third way because he doesn't want the personal moral shame of his rejection, his suppression of her message, and his oppression of her as a wife. But in fact, he is doing that in a more cowardly and passive way. The fact is, is that the word leaves no space among humanity. Because you may not be interested in the word of the gospel, but you have an interest in the gospel, and the word has an interest in you. Your feeling may be that you find religion irrelevant, but the claims of the gospel and of God are relevant objectively to your life. You may, you may not find what you've heard so far of Christian spirituality gripping. But you are caught up in the drama of the story of creation in which God is bringing about his salvation. And you cannot escape that story and that drama that you are a part of. And your choices are part of the dramatic cusp and climax of its moments, at least within the part that is your life. There's, there's, there is no, as much as we wish for there to be, there is no escaping that either you face the message of Jesus and you recognize as it is, it is the word of God. It is the truth of God. And it has all claim on you. And it is the most dramatic and relevant and forceful and truthful and claiming message there could possibly be. Or you reject it and recognize its offense to you and its threat towards you and you will naturally act in some defensive way towards its suppression because you don't think it's true. You think it's false. You think it's bad. You think it's wrong. You think it's dumb. You think it's whatever. And you don't want it to be preached to all men. And you will, whether you think you want to be or not, you will become complicit in ways towards its suppression. Not as a logical necessity, but as a practical and psychological certainty. It's, it is the natural effect of human nature. And so you can think about it this way, because you'd, be, you'd be like, well, well am I definitely going to suffer if I accept Jesus? The message of Jesus as the Word of God? Because I haven't maybe suffered a lot. So let me say it this way. Um, you will either, if you see the message of Jesus as the Word of God, you will either come into solidarity with the people of the Word and their sufferings, or you will become complicit and it's suppression. You may never be the lead suppressor of the gospel, but you will 
Somebody will share the gospel in your presence and other people will shout them down or gainsay them or try to cancel culture them and you won't stand up for them in the midst of that demagoguery. You'll just keep silent. You'll be a coward. You'll let injustices like that have them. You'll let them be suppressed and shut up. You won't you endanger yourself by using your voice to speak for their own justice, even if you disagree with the content. And you'll become complicit in the suppression of the most valuable message in the world for the redemption of the world. Right? And if you really believe in the word, even if you're not presently suffering for the word, you will recognize that your brothers and sisters, that you're one body in Christ with all who suffer for the word. And so you will see yourself in familial solidarity with those who are suffering in and for the word. And so you may feel like in many places in the United States, maybe you're not, you don't feel like you're suffering for the word or that you're suffering for the word is fairly, fairly minor. It's very bearable, right? There are places in the world which that's not true. And the more we recognize that the word of God is the word of God and the people of God are the body of Christ, the more we should be drawn spiritually to solidarity with those who suffer for the word. So let's look at those two quickly. I'm going to say less about each of those than I've said in preparation for them. The first is, is that if you see the word as the word of God, that you'll walk in solidarity with redemptive suffering. You'll recognize is that um, throughout the, the New Testament, it is promised to every believer that they will face suffering and not just the average and normal suffering, of living under the curse, or what sinful people naturally do to one another, but the additional suffering of bearing the scorn of walking with the name of Christ. Because although righteousness is a beautiful thing when lived out in faith and humility, it is also a judging thing by its nature to all who see it and recognize that they have no part in it. Right? Whenever somebody lives better than you. It's, it's, there's this old adage that, you know, like the nail that's standing up, everybody hammers down, right? Why do they do that, right? It's because the person who achieves more than their peers is usually despised and resented by their peers. And when you, if you walk like Jesus, if you really try to walk like Jesus as best as you can, sometimes they hate you, the people hate you because you think you're being like Jesus, but you're really just being really religious and annoying and mean and judgmental, and their, their, their scorn for you is deserved, and you just don't see it because you're being wicked in a different way than them, and so you don't see it, but they definitely see it, right? And that's why humility is so important, and the community of faith is so important to help you know if that's happening to you. But sometimes you'll really walk like Jesus, and, and frankly, sometimes you will not be thanked for it. Sometimes when we walk in the, in the integrity of righteousness, and we don't cheat and harm people, people really rejoice at that. But when we call people up to a higher moral place, when we tell people that what they're doing is unacceptable, whether that's related to racism or finances, it bothers the heck out of them. <laughs> right? And, and what, what this says is, what the Apostle Paul says is, if you believe that the Word is the Word of God, you will embrace and receive that redemptive suffering in whatever form it takes. And he says, and that's happened to you Thessalonians, the people this is written about. He says, he says, you've been abused by your own city, the people in your own country. Like your neighbors, the people of your own ethnicity are abusing you because you've come to faith in Jesus. He's like, listen, that's the way it's always been for the people of God. All the people who have accepted the word of God as the word of God and lived for it rather than this world. Whenever that happens, they're abused by the people who don't like them because of it. And listen, 
You might think that I mean mostly irreligious people, but most of the persecutors in the Bible are religious people, right? When he says, the Jews killed Jesus Christ and the prophet and drove us out, he's not making an anti-Semitic remark. Paul is a Jew. Who do you think makes up all the people in the churches of Judea? Judea literally means it's the Roman slur of the land of the Jews, okay? Virtually all of the people in the land of Judea are Jews. And so who makes up the churches of Judea? Jews. Okay, so he, he's a Jewish rabbi, Paul is, talking about churches filled with Jews. And then he says, they were mistreated by the Jews who killed Jesus and drove us out also. What is he saying? He's not saying Jews are bad. The point of the Bible is not that Jews are remarkably bad. The point of the Bible, when the Jews don't act well, is that the Jews are typical humans. Jews are, Jews are typical. They're just like everybody else, right? And so because of that, whatever the Jews do, you should watch that you're going to do. Who has been some of the greatest persecutors of people of the word? And the answer is other people who said they were Christians. Some of those vicious attacks in American Christendom of people of the word have been other people that label themselves Christians that don't like the Christianity of people who will obey the word of Scripture. In America, the history of that is the, is the fundamentalist modernist controversy. The people who didn't want to rewrite all of Christianity to fit modern norms, whether politically or scientifically, as they were understood at the moment, because it takes a while to integrate your politics and your faith. It takes a while to integrate new science in your faith. Some people jump to conclusions. Some people hold back. But in many cases, this happened in the Reformation too. There were some groups in the Reformation that other groups persecuted. Obviously, the Roman Catholic Church persecuted the early Reformation. And you shouldn't think, listen, you should not think, it may be other religious people that most dislike you and that you find you are mostly hurt by. Right? Sometimes it's secular people, if you're in a profoundly secular culture, but not always. Now, there's a couple things to take from this uh, that, that I want you to take from this idea. The, the one is um, solidarity. And the other is sober humility. So solidarity is, is to recognize this. The level in which you will face persecution for the word in, right now, wherever—I don't know where everybody is watching this, but generally speaking, in Madison, where this is shooting from, um, there are costs to being a person of the word fully. There are costs. Um, I hear about them all the time. Some people don't think so. A lot of times I run into younger people who believe in Jesus. They're like, they're like, we don't, we don't get persecuted bad. It, like, what's happening is the hegemony of the majority voice of Christianity in America is breaking down, and everybody's getting their voice, and there's some disruption in that, and Christians feel attacked, and that's normal. And there is a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. There was a Christian norm, both morally, politically, and culturally, in America, at least in name. It was, it's, it's pretty nominal in name only in a lot of ways, but that is breaking up to a more pluralistic voice. Those things are happening. But also at the same time as a pastor, I hear consistently of people who are paying a price for their faith in the city. In this city, there is prejudice against it and bigotry against it. That's true. But not like in central Nigeria when towns are getting burned out by Boko Haram and women are being stolen to be sex slaves. It's not the same as a young person in China who has to decide whether or not their social capital relative to the technological way Chinese um, means of moving up and down your reputation in the Communist Party based on what you say or do, listening always on your phone can wreck your financial future, your economic future, your capacity to marry somebody that you want to marry. 
It's not like in certain places in India where after 40 years of gospel work among a fishing village, this is very close to the place where I visited last, um, Hindu extremists just came in, shut down all the churches, dispersed all the Christians, just decided there was, wasn't going to be churches in this village anymore. That's, that's normal all over the world. And, um, and if, we, if we believe in the word and we are people of the word, the more we are people of the word, the more we should see ourselves as one people and one body and brothers and sisters with those people. Right? And, and I don't—and and that, that is partly in relationship to persecution on the basis of the word itself, but it's also in, in, in relationship to their basic well-being. Right? The Bible says in one place, do good to everyone, but especially those in the family of believers. That is, in that particular situation, it was talking about charitable giving or financially helping. Not only—it doesn't just stop at how much people are persecuted, but it also goes on to their needs and difficulties, right? For example, what, what would the black church be like in America if there wasn't any racism or effects of racism or unhelpful applications of inequity anywhere? How strong would it be? How much would the word be going forward through them that's hindered now because of all kinds of ways in which people are hurt and held back and harmed in development and not, not really being able to avail themselves of opportunities or, or there's discouragements that keep certain things from happening. How much flowering could there be among our brothers and sisters? And I don't know what the result is, but I, if I start with solidarity and move towards them in love and then try to work out with them in trust what might help, that is part of the movement of solidarity, and I'm motivated to do that because I think I'm a person of the word. I want to be a person of the word, and I know that some of these brothers and sisters are people of the word, and even if we're divided by everything else, that's enough to start, and it's a strong foundation on which to stand. It's not enough. It's not everything. I can't just say, well, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, we're brothers in Christ, that's it. No. Because we're brothers in Christ, we have the potential to work together and to talk with each other and to do things that should be done. And secondly is sober humility, which is there's a difference between being persecution prepared and, pers and having a persecution complex. Right? We need to be happy sufferers. Now, I, I know that in a time like this, especially when we're talking about racial tension and injustice, if I say about our Christian faith that we should be happy sufferers, in whatever oppression we might face, you might take corollary from that that I believe that African Americans should feel that way too about whatever they think is wrong with how they're being treated. And I don't think that. Especially if they're not believers. I don't see why they would think that. Right? The, p characters in the New Testament are always working against injustice while being happy sufferers under injustices they can't change. So the fact that we can belong to Christ and know that whatever men do to us can't stop or change our relationship with God and our access to joy. So the Bible can talk about people being enslaved in the horrible slavery of the Greco-Roman world as being a place where they can find joy and do good. But that never means that we shouldn't try to undo that particular injustice. Paul says, look, if you get free, get free. And he tells Philemon exactly what he can do with Onesimus, which is not much. Receive him as a brother and uh, see him as somebody who has, has paid debts to me, and right? Okay. And so when we think about ourselves, 
We should be people who seek to alleviate and undo any injustice that we see. But we should recognize that pe people are going to find us as threatening. If we're people of the word, our very lives, the gospel that we believe in and the life that we live out is an implicit application— I'm sorry, an implicit indictment of them if they haven't accepted the word. As sinners in need of Christ, whether we do it actively saying, look, you're a sinner in need of Christ, or whether we do it passively saying, I'm a sinner in need of Christ, the reason I live in, in the humility and righteousness that I seek is because I'm a sinner in need of Christ. And the minute you say that, they have to assume that that's them too. Even in our, in our loving passivity, we're still creating an indictment if real godliness and faith is coming out of us. And so we have to be—we have to know how people can respond. We have to expect them to be defensive about that. We need to recognize that they're not going to like what we say or how we think or how we behave. We, and we should recognize that if everybody likes us, that's probably not a good sign. And if we can tweet along with every other angry tweet and be like, oh yeah, that's right, we're probably not— in line with the word. But that's different than saying, because we know this is going to happen, that we have a persecution complex, and everything that anybody does that doesn't like us has to be some kind of, some kind of way they're just, they just want to attack us. There's an ugliness to, to anticipating and being overdramatic about and not being comforted in Christ in whatever sufferings we face. Those sufferings are redemptive. We get to walk with Christ and to be in the heritage of the prophets, right? Lastly, I'm going to do this one quickly because it's really just the opposite of what I just said, which is if you don't recognize the gospel is the word, then you will stray into complicity and to damnable suppression. Complicity. You may not see yourself as a driver or an active suppressant of the word, but you will in one way or another become complicit in it, right? He says then that you suffered from your own comfortment, just as we suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and drove us out. It's not just, it's not just killing somebody. It's harming them economically and driving them out of an area. And he, said, and he says that there's two effects of this. That they displease God and they're hostile to all people. Now, the first one maybe is obvious, and I already said something about it. If this is God's word of redemption and you suppress it, that's going to displease God, right? And we'll say more about that right now. But he says that they're hostile to all men. Think about that for a second. What does that mean? Well, if it's, if it's true that the word is the word of salvation, and you do anything to suppress it going to people, what are you doing, right? Well, you're in some way being complicit in suppressing the message that every human being needs. And in that way, you're oppressing all human beings and acting hostily towards them because you're acting in a way to inhibit their greatest need from coming to them in its fullest possible way. There is nothing more immoral you see, this, is, this gets back to the big if true, true so big. If the gospel is true, there is no greater injustice in creation than suppressing the free flow of the gospel to all who can hear it. That is the greatest possible injust injustice because the gospel is the greatest possible healant of everything. In all people, in all places, at all times, for all eternity. And the goods for which we wait, as human beings, we wait for because we are not changed by the gospel. And so there are many injustices that people can do of many kinds, in many places, and in various ways. But the greatest one is the suppression of the greatest thing. And in any way in which we are complicit in the suppression of the gospel, 
It is a great and damnable thing. It displeases God, and it is a hostile oppression to all humanity. And Paul says that when we do it, we heap up condemnation for ourselves. So much so that God will judge us even temporally. Now, that's really important because in most cases, it seems as though judgment is, is retained for the end, really, for most people. Because individual suffering can be saved till the end. Why can't you judge somebody at the end? Right? But um, I can't remember which founding father it was. I think it might have been George Mason. <coughs> he said about—and he said this about slavery, actually, in America. He said, if we don't end slavery in America—because this was in the 1700s, 1780s, I think. If we don't end slavery in America, God will judge our country. Because countries can't be judged in final judgment. Only people can be judged in final judgment. Countries have to be judged in the here and now. Because it's the only time they're constituted and exist. So if we don't end slavery, God will judge America. Right? See that point? I think that's very valid. And so what he's, what he's also saying is, he's saying, if, you, if we are complicit in the suppression of the gospel, when is the suppression of the gospel relevant and when must it stop? And the answer is, well, right now. Right now is the time of the gospel where people are hearing it and responding to it and where it has to go out to all people. And so if we are complicit in its suppression, God can judge us personally in the end. But he has a great interest in destroying our suppression of it now so that it can be freed to go abroad and go out. And so what he's saying is he's saying, these, these people who have suppressed the gospel in Judea, who have continued to do it and been aggressive in doing it, they have heaped up those sins for themselves and God has judged them now. He says, judgment has come upon them at last, meaning he was referring to something that had happened in Judea that was terrible, probably a famine, that had been horrible, but had allowed for the suppression of the gospel to be lifted and for things to break open so that it could spread again. And so one of the horrors of our complicity in the suppression of the gospel is not only that it's eternally damnable, but that it's presently actionable by God. And that negativity is meant to motivate us to accept the gospel as it really is, right? So quickly, how do we end this? You've got to decide on the gospel. Is the gospel the word of God or the word of men? Which is it? What do you believe? What are you willing to believe? Look, if you haven't ever believed the gospel— See, some of you may be Christians or have gone to church for a long time and think of yourselves as Christians, but you don't believe in Jesus like the message about Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel of your salvation— is the Word of God. You act like it's just some cultural religious thing, or like this advice that you get in your life. You don't—it doesn't have the gravity of the words of God. You need to change that. You need to believe totally differently. You might need to accept the gospel again right now and believe in Jesus, knowing that the message of his death and resurrection for your salvation is the Word of God, not men. Right? Second thing is that are you willing to imitate the people of the word? Because it leads towards redemptive suffering, probably. And at least your solidarity with people in redemptive suffering. Like, in the course of my life, listen, in the course of my life, I've given thousands and thousands of dollars towards other Christians all over the world because of the suffering that they're a part of. Like, it's affected me, at least in that sense, monetarily, but also in my prayer life. Some of the passions of what I've done, where I've gone with my vacations. I can't tell you how many vacations I haven't gone on because I've gone on mission trips. You're like, well, mission trips are so glamorous and exotic. Yeah, I normally go to slums and super hot places and don't do very fun things. Okay, so let's, let's not let's pretend it's glamorous. Okay, it's not. I do it because it's the Word of God that can't be suppressed and must be given to all people. Right? 
if you're not a believer, or if you're a believer that judges people of the word, and, and you are, you just stop suppressing the word. It is too dangerous. Stop. Any way that you see yourself suppressing the word, stop. Fourth, thank God that you see the word working in anyone. And then you have to recognize that we're heralds, not judges, right? That, that we were entrusted with the gospel. It's the word of God that they hear from us. We can warn of future judgment, but we don't bring that judgment. Remember, our job is to move the word. Move the word. And let the word do its work. Because in the end, right, in the end, it is the word that does it all, right? Paul, Paul doesn't thank the Thessalonians for believing the word. He thanks God that they received the word as the word. And he says, because it's that word that's at work in you. Because it's the word of God. So as, as you face anything in your life, and as you think about God and what your life means, and whether or not you can find religion disinteresting, or whether or not it has an interest in you, whether you like it or not, you and I have to grapple with the fact and truth of who God is, what his word is, what path we're going to go on, and what that's going to mean for not just our eternity, but for everyone that we touch. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would— that you would lead us to put our faith in you and in your Christ as though the message about him wasn't advice or religious tradition or spiritual wisdom only, but that it was the very word of God. I pray that you'd rest it on us like a mountain's weight of solid rock and that we would recognize the weight of the glory of your authority. And that from that we would take the encouragement that your promises are rooted in that authority. And that our future joy is dependent on that authority. But that also your call to godliness and repentance and humility and the loving service of others. And the willingness to change when we find out we're wrong about something. And the solidarity we're meant to have with other believers and also even with our neighbors. That we would embrace that as Christ did himself in, the, in his mission. And Father, as we sing these songs now and give ourselves to worship and devotion to you, help us to sing them with all our hearts. Help us to give all of our hearts to you. Help us to revel in the truths that they speak about. Help us, however awkward it is in the room that we're in, to pray and sing and act and give ourselves to you entirely as though we are responding to the very words of God. Holy Spirit, help us. We thank you for what your word has already done in us. And we pray that it would work powerfully in us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name.